beloved Christ Church, if you'd please turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, as we continue our series through uh, Paul's magisterial epistle uh, to the church at Rome and to us. Uh, Please stand for the reading of God's word, Romans chapter 11. Uh, This morning, uh, we will be considering Romans 11, verses 7 through 10. Please hear the word of God. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap a stumbling block and a retribution for them, that their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Amen. Here ends the reading of God's word. Would you pray with me? Our Father, as we once again come to your word in the book of Romans, we ask that you would grant us grace, illumination, wisdom, that you would direct our eyes and hearts to Christ, your Son, as he is lifted up. We thank you for our salvation in him. Lord, teach us more about this salvation. Help us to understand who you are, who we are, and who we are in Christ more and more, that we might serve you faithfully as your disciples. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. It's an essential point that Paul has been highlighting since the opening verses of this epistle. Whether a Jew or a Gentile, sin has ruined us all. Whether a tiger or a gamecock, sin has ruined us all. No matter your background, no matter your ethnicity, no matter your religious affiliations, no matter your familial backgrounds, Sin has ruined us all. It's left us morally depraved and thus incapable of repairing our broken relationship with God. Now, uh, for those who have been members of this church for the past 10 years, you say, yes, Pastor John, we know this. You've been saying this every Sunday for the past 10 years. Here's the thing. I'm going to keep saying it. Paul keeps saying it. All the apostles keep saying it, Christ keeps saying it, and a lot of pastors and churches in our day aren't saying it. They're not saying it. Over the course of years and decades, there has been a movement away from sound doctrine and a movement toward the minimization of the truth about mankind and his nature. If we do not know the truth about mankind's nature, then why is the news of the gospel such good news? Because what do people do who do not understand that they are sinners? They rely upon themselves for salvation, whatever that even means to them. And so we come to this point over and over again, dear ones, that we are morally depraved and we are thus incapable of repairing our broken relationship with God. We are born dragons. Kids, we are born dragons, and we cannot undragon 
ourselves. This is the lesson, isn't it, that C.S. Lewis taught in his book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, a part of the famous Chronicles of Narnia series. Those of you who have read the book know about the, uh, the endlessly annoying Eustace Scrub. Eustace Scrub. He was the cousin of Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy, and ended up on one of their adventures to Narnia. Eustace was an endless antagonizer and complainer. Nothing was ever right. Nothing was ever right. And he wanted everyone to know that nothing was ever right. You're thinking, yeah, that sounds like someone at my workplace. Yeah, um, Nothing was ever right. The ship that they were on, the Dawn Shredder, it, it dropped anchor in a beautiful bay. And there was work to be done on the ship. But Eustace, only thinking about himself, didn't want to help with the repairs he wanted to explore. And so Eustace made his way by himself up a nearby mountain. After taking a nap, he decided he ought to return to the ship because he thought, well, maybe they'll leave me. Uh, he was worried about that. He knew he was not liked. And so he, he didn't want to get left behind. As he made his way back, he encounters a dying dragon. What's even more exciting than the dragon was the treasure that he appeared to be guarding. The, the dragon soon died and Eustace soon began to take all of these jewels and coins and things and he's stuffing his pockets and he's, and he's putting things in his shirt and he wants to take this home with him. So as Eustace tried to find his way back to the ship, he got lost and he got tired and so he took another nap. When he woke up, he turned into a dragon. He turned into a dragon. And so everything was different. He flew down to the ship with his dragon wings and he managed to communicate with his cousins that he was Eustace and he had turned into a dragon. And for a few days, he, even in his dragon state, sought to be useful uh, and uh, he also began to feel bad about the way he was acting prior to becoming a dragon. He started feeling bad and that he had been a real jerk towards his family. And when it was time to set sail, everyone realized, we've got a problem here. We can't fit the dragon. We can't fit Eustace onto the boat. They tried to work through a few ideas. None of them worked. And this is when Aslan the lion arrived, the Christ figure of the story. He told Eustace to go ahead and remove his dragon skin. Eustace tried and failed three different times. It was impossible to scratch off his dragon skin. And that's what Aslan wanted him to realize. Eustace could not save himself from his dragon-like state. Dear ones, nobody can. Nobody can. So Eustace looked to Aslan to rescue him from his impossible condition. In the story, he says, it says this, quote, I was, this is Eustace speaking, I was afraid of his claws. I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back to let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. 
Aslan undragoned Eustace. He graciously and powerfully rescued him from who he was and from what he deserved. On his own, he was unable to save himself. Only Aslan could deliver him. Only Aslan could undragon him. That's exactly what he did, and Eustace would never be the same. Beloved, isn't this a metaphor for everything that Paul has been communicating to the Christians at Rome? We cannot save ourselves. It's the opposite of what the world is telling us all the time. That with some therapy or with some material possessions or with the certain kinds of friends or certain kinds of experiences, we can save ourselves in one way or another. But on our own, we cannot remove the thick dragon skin of sin that covers our hearts and darkens our minds and affects every single part of us. Our fallen, sinful condition requires grace. Our separation from God, because we are sinners, requires sovereign grace. Only Christ can rescue us. Sadly, this is what Paul's countrymen, the Jews, just didn't understand. Rather than receive the gift of God's perfect righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ, they sought to establish their own righteousness. They sought to establish their own righteousness. Rather than look by faith to the one who could save them from their sin, they looked to themselves. Rather than look outside of themselves to the Messiah, they looked inside of themselves for justification. They looked to their own status and their own heritage and their own works. Paul explained it well in chapter 10, verses 2 and 3, if you'd like to look there. Paul writes, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God, they sought to establish their own. This is essentially a commentary on our text for this morning. Being ignorant of the righteousness of God. In other words, being ignorant of the holiness of God and of the righteous requirements of God and of the gift of righteousness that He gives to sinners as a free gift by grace through faith, they sought to establish their own righteousness. And as the title of my sermon states, they sought this, but were not successful. They did not obtain it. They did not find it. Look with me at verse 7. Paul begins with another rhetorical question. He says, what then? What then? It's similar to if he'd written, what shall we say then? Or, or what follows? Or what should we deduce from this? In other words, the apostle, is, the apostle is asking, what should we infer from what I have just written in verses 1 through 6? Verses that make two things clear, and we considered this last week, right? Number one, that God has not fully cast off Israel for their sinful Rebellion. Look with me at verse Romans 11 and verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know that what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? 
Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. So that's the first point that Paul makes, is that God has not fully cast off Israel for their sinful rebellion. The Apostle Paul's conversion is exhibit A of this fact. For he explains in verse 2 that he is an Israelite. He is a son of Abraham. He is of the tribe of Benjamin, and he is a Christian. Moreover, Paul points to the prophet Elijah's story in 1 Kings and demonstrates that God has not abandoned all Israel, either in Elijah's day or in the present day. 7,000 had not bowed down to Baal. 7,000 in Israel, 7,000 Jews, were objects of God's undeserved mercy. Notice what it says there, a remnant chosen and saved by God's sovereign grace. And even considering some of the points we touched upon last week, what an encouragement it is that we know that there are 7,000 who have not bowed down the knee to Baal. Now, this is a a number that that is being referred to. It could be a a kind of a number of perfection referring to God's elect. It could be a a rounded number that there were about 7,000 people in all of Israel who had not bowed the knee. We don't know exactly, but what we do know is that God shall save his people from their sins and nobody and no thing can stop him. Christ said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so while all the forces of evil, while all the armies of hell come against the gospel and come against the church and may at times look like he's winning, guess what? Christ is building his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. There will always be 7,000 that will not bow the knee. Not, not a, don't say, Pastor John said there are only 7,000 Christians in the whole world. I heard him. No, 7,000, it represents all of those who are by grace, through faith in Christ, not bowing the knee to Baal, but bowing the knee to King Jesus, standing firm in the gospel. What an encouragement. What an encouragement, dear ones, as the the pressures of the world mount upon us. As the challenges increase of being a Christian, it used to be that you could be a kind of nominal Christian. You really didn't even believe a lot of the Bible, but you wanted to have a, a kind of a good association, association in the community, a good reputation in the community. And so you went to church. But these days, there is no social credibility to being a Christian like there used to be, right? And this is just going to continue apart from God doing an amazing work of revival. It will continue to be more and more difficult and challenging to be a Christian in our culture, which is why we need to listen to the gospel, to stand firm in the gospel, and to encourage one another and to teach our children God has not fully cast off Israel for their sinful rebellion. Elijah expressed sadness and lament, and God said, you're not the only one. Praise the Lord for that. There is a present-day remnant chosen and saved by grace. That's the second point. There is a present-day remnant chosen and saved by grace. Paul is saying to his fellow countrymen that God had a remnant chosen by grace then during the days of Elijah, and he has a remnant chosen by grace Now, 
And once again, to make it abundantly clear that salvation is all of grace, he writes in verse 6, But if salvation for the remnant is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. You could put like a million things in front of that, or grace would no longer be grace. Faith cannot precede regeneration. Or, what? Grace would no longer be grace. Our works or motivations or intentions leading to salvation would mean that grace is no longer grace. You see, grace is only grace as if we're saved by grace, full period. Stop. Nothing else. Grace. And so Paul then writes in verse 7, what should we say about these things? What therefore follows? What do we infer from these things? And then Paul writes, Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. They failed to obtain what it was seeking. Here Paul is speaking about the apostate nation of Israel. The majority of Israel, who in Elijah's day and in his own, had failed to obtain what it was seeking. And what were they seeking? Salvation. They were seeking justification. They were seeking a right standing with God. But by seeking a right standing with God through their own meritorious works and relying upon their spiritual privileges and ethnic status, they failed to obtain what they were seeking. Now, I want to make this as clear as possible, this wasn't just a problem for first century Jews or present day Jews who did not believe in the Messiah. It is a problem for many, many people who are Gentiles, who are putting their hope and their trust in spiritual privileges. What are those? Baptism, church membership, grandfather was a preacher. Associations with serious Christians, friends. You see, whenever we seek to establish our own righteousness through anything, in other words, seeking our own righteousness to have a right relationship with God, a right standing with God, if we put our hope and our trust and our focus on anything for our salvation but Christ alone, we are seeking to establish our own righteousness. And so the question we all have to ask ourselves this morning is, am I putting my trust in anything other than the blood and righteousness of Christ for my salvation? And if the answer is, well, I'm not really sure about that, then that's a problem. But with that problem comes a wonderful solution. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Repent of your sin by God's grace and look to Christ for salvation. Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking because they were putting their hope and their trust in their ethnicity and their spiritual privileges and their meritorious works. They tried to remove their own dragon skin. And many of us today try to do the same thing. 
But they failed. God gave the law to Moses, not as a means to earn salvation through good works, but as a means of exposing sin. In the same vein as our text, Paul writes earlier in chapter 9, verses 30 and 31, if you look there with me, chapter 9, verses 30 and 31, he says, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, that is a righteousness through the law, have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as it were, based on works. This makes it clear. It's essential to our understanding of salvation. That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness in the way of the Jews, they've attained it. How? They've received it as a gift. Paul says in Romans 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, the gospel, is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. For as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so faith receives the righteousness of Christ as a gift and gives us a right standing with God. And so what the Apostle Paul says next is essential to understanding both salvation and judgment. Look with me again at verse 7. It says, What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. But the rest were hardened. And this is the second overall point, that elect Jews obtained salvation by God's grace. Elect Jews obtained salvation by God's grace. The rest were under his judgment. Again, Paul is returning to themes that we considered at length, of course, in chapters 9 and 10. Um, probably 20 sermons on chapters 9 and 10. And these themes are related to God's sovereign, loving, undeserving, electing grace in Christ. The themes of election and predestination, and not least how it all relates to Israel. Look with me at Romans chapter 9 and beginning in verse 6. Romans 9, beginning in verse 6. Paul writes, in response to the question of Israel and the unbelief of Israel, but it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. What does that mean? It means that all who are descended from physical Israel do not belong to spiritual Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. In other words, not all are spiritual children of Abraham that are physical children of Abraham. But, he writes, Isaac shall your offspring be named. Through Isaac your offspring shall be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, 
but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then, Paul writes? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Do you know what's going on here? This is God being God. This is Almighty God being Almighty God. This is the Sovereign God being the Sovereign God. This divine hardening of Pharaoh hearts is a theme, of course, that runs into our own text for this morning. Before we go on, though, I think it's important to make clear that this hardening is not a divine hardening of a soft, pliable, neutral, and all-around good heart. No, we don't want to forget the first three chapters of Romans. Romans chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20, we have the unpacking of the universal depravity of all of mankind, both Jew and Gentile. And we don't ever want to forget that foundation that Paul has laid in this letter. Romans 3, starting in verse 9, he asks, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. So Paul is making the point here as he exposes the sins of the Gentiles and the Gentile nations at the beginning of chapter 1. He says, are we Jews any better off naturally? Is our natural condition any better off? Paul says, no, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under the dominion and the power and the condemnation of sin. As it is written, and this is Romans 3, starting in verse 10, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And he concludes this section by writing, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. This is a description of humanity in our natural sinful condition. We are born with original sin, and as we grow older, we begin to express that sin 
in our actions, in our thoughts, and in our words. In Ephesians 2, verse 1, Paul writes to the Ephesians, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is the description of those who are outside of Christ. And so when we read about God hardening people, we must understand that this is not God doing violence to people's free wills. It's God bringing judgment upon already fallen and depraved sinners who are living in rebellion against him. Dear ones, people keep saying, God's going to bring judgment of our country if things continue the way they are. Dear ones, God is bringing judgment upon our country. It is happening now. The things that you are seeing, the madness that you are witnessing. People literally saying that things aren't what they are and, and, and are what they aren't. The madness of our country right now. We pray for our president, but it is, as I was saying in Sunday school, it's it's Orwellian that the leader of the free world cannot put two sentences together. And that's not an exaggeration. We pray for him. We want to respect his office. But we're concerned. But this isn't because our nation is so wonderful that these things are happening. It's because God's judgment is resting upon our country. In numerous ways. And we need to call upon the Lord for His grace and for His mercy. But this hardening process in the minds and hearts and wills and affections of people is happening right now in our culture more than ever before in the history of our nation. John Murray explains this, quote, it is a judicial hardening and finds its judicial ground in the unbelief and disobedience of its objects. And this helps us to understand, doesn't it, why Paul references these two Old Testament texts. First of all, the first one we read in verse 8 comes from Deuteronomy 29.4 and as allusions to Isaiah 29.10. Deuteronomy 29.4 and Isaiah 29.10. Look there with me in verse 8. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. Put that out on the church marquee. Come on in and hear a sermon about God giving a spirit of super and bl stupor and blindness and deafness to people. Beloved, this is God's judgment. He's not hardening good, pliable, loving hearts. He's hardening the hearts of rebels for his own purposes of judgment and justice. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. What does this mean? It means that 
God gave them this spirit to make them dull and insensitive to what is going on around them and what is reality and what is truth and what is the gospel. They are not going to see it or listen to it. Some might object and say, well, you know what? I never really liked the Apostle Paul anyway. He's, he's, kind, of a, he's kind of a grumpy guy. And I, I looked at Jesus. I looked at the letters in red. I've heard this many times, by the way. Uh, it's a completely faulty view of Scripture because all Scripture is inspired by God. But... If you want the words of Christ, let's look to Christ. Matthew 13, 13 through 17. Christ says this, again, This is why I speak to them in parables, Jesus says, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, Jesus says, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. Speaking of sitting under the ministry of the Messiah of God and hearing these truths being said. But the Lord Jesus Christ himself speaks about this justice of God, this judgment of God resting on people. And then we come to David. So he first quotes Moses, and now he quotes David in verse 9. And David says... Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Here we have a quote from Psalm 69, verses 22 and 23. And this is what we would call an imprecatory psalm. An imprecatory psalm. You know what an imprecatory psalm is? Uh, it's a psalm that essentially prays that God would bring judgment upon enemies and the wicked. Um, I think it was the first or second year of our marriage, we were at Thanksgiving, and I was asked to give the Thanksgiving prayer at my wife's uh, uh, home, and the whole family was there, and it's a big family. Uh, there must have been 40 people there, 50 people there, and so I decide before I pray to read a psalm, and I had picked out a psalm uh, beforehand. I was looking forward to reading a psalm of Thanksgiving, and, and I began to read the psalm, and as I got halfway through it, I realized I was reading the wrong psalm. I was reading an imprecatory psalm. And I was reading about the enemies of God being dashed against the rocks and judgment raining down. And, and uh, right at the end, after I read this psalm, uh, one of my sort of, one of Marla's zealous aunts said, Amen! <laughs> but I got halfway through and I just went for it because I knew there was no stopping at that point. But imprecatory psalms are, are often misunderstood in our day. We are told to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. That is true, yes. It was true in the Old Testament as well. But there are times when we know the wicked and the enemies of God are seeking 
to bring great harm against the church, or great harm against the church's leaders, great harm against believers. And there is nothing wrong with praying an imprecatory prayer. So long as we also are praying prayers, Lord, if it is not your will to have mercy upon them, which I pray that you would, and have compassion on them, Lord, would you remove them, bring your wrath upon them. And so David prays this prayer, and Paul, he he demonstrates here in Romans that this is a prayer about Israel. King David was going through a hard time. He was under attack by his own people. We don't know the exact context, but we know that David was experiencing persecution from his own people, something that Christ, the, the latter David, as it were, would experience from his own people. And so David calls upon God to judge them and to let their table or their earthly comforts be like a snare and a trap for them, a, a stumbling block to them, a retribution to them, that their eyes will be darkened to blindness and their backs bent in shame. Why does Paul quote this here? To demonstrate that Old Testament Israel was largely wicked and that there was a remnant chosen by grace among them. The same was true in Paul's day. And beloved, the same is true in our own. The same is true in our own. John Calvin explains it this way. Paul fitly applies his testimony to the subject in hand that the blindness of the majority of the people might not appear new or unusual. That the blindness of the majority of the people might not appear new or unusual. Beloved, we will be a minority. Many are called, but few are chosen. One day, the knowledge of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. One day, we shall be in glory. One day, there will be no more tears, no more persecution, no more suffering, no more sin, no more temptation. We will be with God. But until then, we recognize that a majority of the people around us will not be for us or for this truth, and oftentimes will gather strength upon strength against the church. So why, why reinforce this? Paul is letting people know about the Israel question. He's also reminding all of us that 7,000 have not bowed the knee to Baal and that we must, by his grace, continue to stand firm. So let us, dear ones, not be like the majority of Israel seeking what it will never find. They are not the only ones that do this. So many do this around the world today, perhaps some in this room, seeking God's favor, seeking salvation through good works or family connections or ethnic ties or spiritual privilege. By God's grace, may we all put our faith in Christ, in his righteous life, in his sacrificial and atoning death on the cross, in his hell-conquering resurrection, in his ascension to the right hand of God and his return. Let us put our hope and our trust and our faith in him, in his cleansing blood and saving righteousness, 
Let us turn from our sin and from relying upon ourselves and put our hope and trust in Christ for a right standing with God. Once again, in verse 7, What then Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking? The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Oh, that we, by His grace, would be able to say with the hymn writer, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame or emotion or affection, but I wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. When darkness veils his lovely face, in other words, when I don't understand what's going on in my life, when there are trials and and there's darkness and there's suffering and there's tribulation of different kinds, uh, when darkness veils his lovely face, oh, may I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. His, his oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then alone is my hope and stay. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, not in a righteousness that I've sought to establish before God But in His righteousness alone, may I be dressed faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is what? Sinking sand. Amen. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we thank You for this text. We thank thank You for the truths in this text, which remind us that You are God and that we are not. That we deserve Your wrath, but by Your grace, You extended to us mercy And you have united us to Christ by grace through faith. And, O Lord, we do pray that you would bring sinners from death to life, even today. That you would stir up the hearts and minds of those whom you have chosen by grace, a remnant. And that you would be pleased to do so. And that you would continue to grow and to bless your church here and everywhere. Our Father, we thank you. We thank you for your abundant grace in Christ. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.